You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, Aspie's Dr Alex Caples speaks to Hamish Hansford, who was recently appointed Deputy Secretary of Cyber and Infrastructure Security at the Department of Home Affairs. They discuss the links between cybersecurity, supply chain security and critical infrastructure, as well as the rise in ransomware attacks and lessons learned from the Colonial Pipeline hack. Alex asks Hamish about the amendments to the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act, what they mean for industry, and the role that government and industry play in securing Australia's critical infrastructure. Hello everybody, welcome to the ASPE podcast. I'm Alex Caples, the Director of Cyber Tech and Security here at ASPE, and I'm delighted to be joined by Hamish Hansford, the Department of Home Affairs Deputy Secretary of the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Group. Hamish, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, Among other things, you oversee the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Centre in Home Affairs. That's the centre that works with critical infrastructure owners and operators to understand possible risks to their operations. Um, And that's, as I understand it, both physical risks like floods, fires and so on, as well as risks like cyber attack. So before we start to talk about some of the critical infrastructure aspects and some of the legislative reforms that have just kicked in, uh, would you mind giving us a quick overview of the span of your work? Sure. So uh, Australia's critical infrastructure regulator, as you've said, under the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Centre, but we also have a national coordination role uh, looking at how do you protect infrastructure and collaborate nationally and how do you look at particularly aviation, maritime and telecommunications security. Uh, and then I've got a, a big function focused on the security of critical technology and cybersecurity. And we're, we're working, for example, on Australia's cybersecurity strategy at the moment, 2023 to 30, in support of the government. And then finally, we set up a new function on cyber coordination and response, really looking at how do we respond to the consequences of a cyber incident. And, and that will really be in support of a, a national cybersecurity coordinator when appointed. Excellent. And that's not too far away, as I understand it. I, I think that's right. Big remit, probably a few hours of daylight left. So we will. Uh, you've got a lot to do. So certainly we do. Certainly do. Crack on with this conversation, uh, and thank you so much for your time because I know that this is sort of a recent role for you, and and obviously getting across a new role in the first couple of months, very very busy. Um, certainly is. So if we can just talk a little bit about the link between cybersecurity and critical infrastructure for a moment, because those two functions have been brought together in your division. Uh, the government wants Australia to be the world's most cyber secure nation and a top 10 digital economy by 2030. So just really to ask how that Security of Critical Infrastructure Act that was passed last year fits into that vision and, and really, I suppose, just to talk a little bit about why we need those reforms. Sure. So I think many countries around the world are looking at critical infrastructure generally. And for the last 20, 30 years, we've conceived of it in different sectors. But I think increasingly countries are looking at the interconnected nature of infrastructure, supply chain reliance. So for example, telecommunications and energy powers the economy. So when you think about an economy and how we can secure it, infrastructure is at the heart of it. And of course, infrastructure is principally based on networks and systems, which is why cyber and supply chain security is really important. Mm. So critical infrastructure is not a new conversation in Australia. I think arguably we'd say that we were among the first states to put down legislation and to start to think about this in a a kind of systemic way. But this new act really takes us, these reforms that are now starting to kick in, take us to a new kind of level, don't they? They bring in a lot more sectors. 
They do. I think Australia has been thinking about critical infrastructure protection for at least 20 years. And we have had, for example, the Trusted Information Sharing Network, which has been collaborating for the last 20 odd years. There was a point, though, in 2018 where um, government and then the parliament decided, actually, we need to have a focus on infrastructure. And then the par- the last parliament really thought about infrastructure in a much broader way. So 11 different sectors of the Australian economy, um, 22 different classes of critical infrastructure assets. And it's everything from uh, Australia's hospitals to our energy grid to the really critical national security research that's undertaken in universities and research institutions across Australia right through to the telecommunication systems we rely on. The reason why the there's now a Security of Critical Infrastructure Act that has obligations is really, I think, to set a baseline in the critical infrastructure economy about risk management, including cyber and supply chain risk, as well as to have the true understanding of the impact of cyber attacks on critical infrastructure. And that really has manifested in a mandatory cyber incident reporting requirement. And, and then really understanding at a really granular level what infrastructure Australia has and who has a direct interest holding in it. And then finally, we've got a, a regime in place. If everything goes wrong, every other regulatory system of the Commonwealth or states and territories doesn't work, we've got an escalating ability to respond to a cyber incident, the like of which hasn't occurred in Australia. Yes, that's what's commonly, I guess, known as the step-in powers. So right, the government assistance measures and, and one element of which um, has an ability for the government to step in and respond to the cyber incident. Interesting. That is a new development, I guess, and one that as yet is untested. Correct. And are you looking forward to the day that you get to use those powers? Well, we're not because if we're, <laughs> if we're using those powers, something's gone wrong and it means that a cyber attack is having real-world impact. And, and so the, the graduated response is there on the statute book to say, if we're in a scenario where nothing else works, actually gathering information about the incident, directing a response, potentially in contradiction of commercial arrangement or contractual arrangements, and then ultimately allowing the government to step in and help run an infrastructure asset to respond to a cyber incident. That's the nightmare scenario for us, but we're, we're comforted in the fact that we've got powers on the statute book to be able to respond to what would be a pretty significant incident. Yeah, would you be looking there at stepping in? I'm probably taking us a little bit further from the critical infrastructure conversation, but would you be looking there at stepping in essentially in order to manage something or in order to bring infrastructure back online? I I guess these things unfold pretty quickly. It's one of those things where you would not want that to happen. It's an incident that's going to occur and generally if the government is stepping in, it is a huge incident. So is the intent that it would be more of a cleanup, or that it would be management of the of the scenario as it unfolds. Yeah, so it's it's very narrowly cast, and it's really focused on resolution of the cyber incident. People call it step in, but the way that we kind of conceive of how it would actually work is the government helping an infrastructure asset get back online, and actually using that framework to enable that to occur. Okay, interesting. I imagine that industry will be quite interested to kind of understand exactly how that is cast and their roles and responsibilities as far as how that handover occurs, how they would manage that, all those sorts of things that probably speaks to operators in those sectors really needing to develop business plans that that typically factor in those powers and really look to, to understand when you would be brought in and what you would be doing and how they would hand that on. Definitely, and the role that definitely. they would each play, that you would play and they would play. 
Definitely, and, and we've been working with industry on a, a national exercise program. And, and so in the last couple of weeks, for example, we've got major financial institutions together and partnered with ASIC, APRA, the Reserve Bank of Australia to say, what would it be like if we were in a cyber incident and what are the regulatory options? How do we look at the consequences? So we're, we're looking at that in a really systematic way to say, how do we actually practice it ahead of what would be a significant incident? Excellent. And that the option of testing things till they break and scenario testing, obviously a growing appetite, I think, in government to do that, certainly post-pandemic, uh, to really understand what the, the real world effects would look like. Definitely. I, I think people um, think that, that if you have a plan in place, it, it's great, but actually if you don't test it, the plan won't survive first contact with whatever scenario it might be. That's that classic sort of fire warden approach where, you know, where everybody knows that a fire drill is coming and then magically it all works well because the fire warden's got their clipboard and everybody's gone out for coffee at the time that the bell rings and so on. So That's right. Those are not actually useful functional exercises in terms of understanding what genuinely might need to happen in that situation. Exactly. So new sectors that have been brought in, um, you're obviously, I know that there's been a lot of groundwork, uh, home affairs in terms of consultation around industry sectors that are now picked up in these reforms. Just to, to sort of lay out who is new to that sector and perhaps some of the obligations that might now apply. Sure. So in 2018, uh, the, the Act was very narrowly cast on the top 20 Australian ports and the energy and water and sewerage elements that effectively powered the economy. We've expanded that to include telecommunications, healthcare, education. And I, I think the, the general um, view from, from home affairs is everyone's different. And so everyone's at a different stage of maturity. Banks, for example, have been highly regulated and are effectively um, networked organisations that have a strong focus on cybersecurity. If you're a hospital, for example, you've got a different cyber problem, lots of Internet of Things connected devices, public places where people go to receive treatment. So nothing's the same, but the principles of risk management are very common across infrastructure. And so that's kind of the, the key central obligation that Minister O'Neill's put in place for critical infrastructure to have a risk management program to keep it up to date and to comply with it. And we, we co-designed the, the rule that underpinned the risk management program around what are the material risks that might impact the functioning of infrastructure? What are the cyber elements? What are the personnel security requirements? What are the physical re requirements? And what are the supply chain requirements? So it's really a, a holistic look at risk management. And so that's the central obligation that's in place, as well as mandatory cyber incident reporting. And then for a special group of infrastructure, we call them systems of national significance. We are really focused on incident response planning and exercises. So that's really the key element of the, the reforms that are put in place. And I think the Australian public would look at the reforms and say, actually, it's about risk management, it's about prevention, and it's about response. Flexible approach in the in the sense of being all hazards to some extent, but equally looking at that risk profile, but the reporting obligations remain the same. That's right. So, so we took a very um, principles-based approach to regulation. If you're looking at 11 different sectors, and they are very different, we need to have a principles-based approach, with the exception in, in cybersecurity, where we've actually asked critical infrastructure over the next year to meet a maturity level. We've been very open about that. We're looking at the security outcome. So that could be the essential aid. It could be ISO's 27001. It could be the NIST framework or a, a sector-specific cyber standard. But we actually want people to uplift cyber and meet a maturity level 
because that that is a, an increasing threat to Australian infrastructure. Mm. And as you, I think, just referenced there, there's a range of different standards around. The NIST standard is the American standard. There's ISO standards, obviously. Is there a recommended standard that is not necessarily mandated but is kind of the minimum that home affairs is expecting or that that legislation is expecting uh, sectors to meet? Yeah, so, so we have said to meet a relevant maturity model. So, for example, maturity at level one of the essential eight guidance from the Australian Cybersecurity Centre or an appropriate equivalent standard. And we've left that very open on purpose in both the the instrument that, that underpins the risk management program for the reason that the NIST framework is really proportionate, and so uh, we don't want to be too prescriptive. But the, the essential eight maturity level one, which is largely geared towards Microsoft-based systems, that's effectively one of the standards, mm. but it, it's not prescriptive. A couple of things, I guess, to unpack there. One of those is infrastructure and how we define infrastructure. You mentioned hospitals previously, Internet of Things, and data, obviously, a big part of the healthcare kind of uh, sector, obviously, been hit by a lot of ransomware attacks in recent times. How are we defining infrastructure in this sense? Does that include data? Does that wrap data in or is that a separate issue again? So uh, it, it depends on the class of critical infrastructure asset. We do, of course, capture data processing and storage, commercial um, data processing, processing and storage as a critical infrastructure asset class in and of itself. So we're effectively saying if you provide a commercialised data service, that is critical infrastructure for Australia and increasingly cloud providers and data centres actually underpin the digital economy. And then the extent to which you rely on data to underpin your running of an infrastructure asset, we do, for example, cover business critical data in the risk management program because it's essentially about running the asset. The big question flowing from some of the cyber incidents um, last year, and it's in the expert advisory board's uh, discussion paper is, do you look at customer data and the protection of customer data as part of critical infrastructure? So that's a live discussion. And, and when you look at it internationally, um, Colonial Pipeline is a really good example about where a, an attack on the customer data actually led then to the shutdown of the pipeline. So there is some um, so, some connectivity and mm-hmm. some issues, uh, but but it's a live policy discussion. Colonial Pipeline was an interesting one, particularly because that was, a, I suppose, a commercial decision really to close down a pipeline because without the customer data, Colonial couldn't actually bill customers for, for the, you know, the supplies they were receiving um, rather than actually that the pipeline itself wasn't working. That's, that was the situation, wasn't it? I think, I think that's um, my understanding of it, but I think there's also a risk of lateral movement. So I think, yeah, a bit more complex than, than maybe the, the media's portrayed. Mm. So data, I suppose, is very much in the wind at the moment and there's we know that there's things like Privacy Act review and so on which which will probably play into that as far as how data is captured in federal legislation, how the sort of various reporting obligations are harmonised and so on. Um, the, just to come back again to the question about operators, so we, we talked just before about the ways in which, um, you know, if we're looking at a vertical stack, what's included in infrastructure there. If we, if we then look horizontally as, I suppose, how far out this legislation and these reforms ripple? Operators, how are, how are we defining them and how do they come into that piece? So, so we define critical infrastructure assets. So a really good example of that is an electricity generator. So a, a above a certain threshold. 
the responsibility to protect that asset is on owners and operators of that asset. So we're trying to define the actual infrastructure asset. And a lot of people have difficulty because we're not designating companies. Um, we're actually looking at the critical infrastructure asset. And it might be one of the things that a company runs. So the owners and operators have responsibility for that asset and that's where we put the obligations. Okay, so you might have a reporting obligation around certain assets that sit within, you know, that you're responsible for as a company but not necessarily other parts of the business that you run. You're purely based on the asset, you're purely based on the bit that if it fails actually causes problems in terms of supply or business continuity. Absolutely right. Excellent. That's a complexity, I suppose, as far as, as you say, that then requires government to work with industry uh, quite closely to understand exactly, to, to get to that level of granularity around what those assets are. Is that an ongoing process or are you fairly comfortable with where that map sits at the moment? I think it's an ongoing dialogue with industry, but I think that the concept is unless you know particularly what is critical and what you're trying to protect, everything's critical. And that's not a good place for an Australian economy to be in or any country. So it is granular and we are building up a strong picture and we're building up a picture particularly about interdependency and how the assets interrelate. And I think that's a really important thing for government and industry to focus on. Mm. Is that something that uh, as far as things like redundancy, business continuity, you, you would obviously look to try and inject that wherever possible and to inject that as far up the the chain, I suppose, as possible as well. Logically, much of that onus, I suppose, would lie with industry. So is that something that industries come to the party on? Is that something that they're prepared to cooperate, collaborate? Definitely. And, and I think there is a responsibility there for the government to look at um, bringing and convening people together. Because once you, you have a group of um, individual companies within a sector, you can actually look at critical areas where there's an over-reliance on something and and when you bring people together you, you pretty quickly realize in a preventative sense if you've all got the same incident response plan that relies on a particular thing then there might be greater vulnerability than you realize and i think that's an ongoing role for government and industry to collaborate on best practice regulation best practice settings and best practice plans and responses mm. plans and responses part very interesting too because you could see that everybody would say well we would switch to a secondary provider and if that secondary provider is down as well uh, or that's everybody's fail safe can cause enormous amounts of problems and we've seen that i think in the past with things for for things like bushfire hazard and so on exactly Information sharing is that you mentioned the trusted information sharing network, and that's really where you have you bring together that group of of entities to talk about what assets, where the risks are, the vulnerabilities, what they're doing about that, and so on. There's a slight tension there always, I guess, and has been in critical infrastructure throughout around having a regulatory function to some extent, as well as then needing to work so closely with industry to to have the information about what those threats are, so that you can adapt and and respond to this moving story. How do we square that circle? That's a challenge that I think every nation has, interested just to see the Australian position on that. Well, I think every nation, every regulator has that challenge, but every regulator has a responsibility to implement the law as well as build a collaborative and educational and an environment where you can actually collaborate. So, so we've structurally separated the regulatory function with our national coordination function and the really mature players in instinctively understand you can collaborate on one day and then have a regulatory discussion on another day. And, and that that's part of, um, I think, the maturity of particularly infrastructure providers 
but of of how government interacts with industry as well. Mm. Relationships have matured. There's a genuine degree of trust there, particularly, as you say, I would imagine in sectors like finance sector, which are, have been regulated for a long time, very familiar and comfortable with that. Are there sectors that you think where that that's an, an evolving conversation where that maturity is still in train? I think I think that's right, but but then there's also a different regulatory response. So if a, a sector is coming new to security issues, kind of generally, and um, particularly cyber issues, we have a strong obligation to think about the security outcome rather than just a compliance outcome. So it's more about education, awareness, building partnerships, and actually thinking about what other critical infrastructure providers might be able to help because some of them actually have cross-cutting responsibilities and we we might be talking to a critical infrastructure provider who actually has services from four other critical infrastructure and so it's about how do you collaborate with people and and share information and actually use those relationships in what what is effectively a new set of infrastructure collaborators in the economy mm. Mm. yeah absolutely needing to be that kind of constructive uh, collaborative approach, maturity of conversation around you are operators in a particular sector like telecommunications and you are competitors in one way and yet in this sphere you really need to be coming together under the umbrella of critical infrastructure security to understand what the common shared risk is. Exactly. Shared, even if your response is different, even if you're a Telstra and an Optus taking slightly different approaches to how you mitigate that risk. Exactly. I'm pretty sure that every critical infrastructure asset would have a telecommunications service provider in some way. Yes, that's that. That's so, so that's a good example that you're talking about. Same as data, same as energy. They're all providers to the other infrastructure assets. So, will asset owners and operators know by now that they are owners and operators? Uh, as in, will they be informed, or is the onus on them to confirm their status? So, so the the onus is on uh, critical infrastructure asset owner and operator to realise they're captured. We do have a, a lot of outreach. We have run um, information sharing sessions. We've got our own website. We're, we're proactively reaching out. So it's a joint collaboration, but people should know if they're running infrastructure in Australia. So if you're an operator and you're looking at a particular substation or so on, that's you need to be looking at the website, getting an understanding of what your obligations are under the legislation. Are they reporting individually or are they working with the owners of the asset, for example, to put together some sort of consolidated report what's the what's the sort of process so there? so i think um the the first reporting requirement was around um direct interest holders about the asset so we've got a really good insight into people who've already proactively engaged with us to register their asset and then um we, we use that to look at is that right for that um, set of assets is there anyone missing and we can go and talk to those who might be missing and don't know about the legislation then we're getting a good insight into mandatory cyber incidents because we it's on a day-to-day basis you can see who's reporting and then the big issue from 17 August will be having a risk management program and so those three obligations really do give us a good insight into how engaged people are and whether or not they think they're captured by the legislation and how active they are. Excellent. The risk management program essentially designed for owners and operators to have a look at themselves and to really go through that thorough kind of spectrum of risk, look at where they where they might be vulnerable and potentially then to confer with others in that trusted information sharing network or other forums to understand what their, I, I guess, um, partners or competitors in the same industry might be experiencing. That's an excellent exercise in and of itself in the sense that 
for, for owners and operators to really go through a thorough risk management process, you would certainly hope that they would be doing that as part of their commercial operations in any case, but this is perhaps a slightly different lens. And looking outside the business as far as upstream dependencies as well, how about that sort of risk where companies may not know what they don't know and how we address those? Is that is that something that is a concern or something that needs to be further developed as part of this conversation with industry? Definitely. And the, the government's funded us for the next year $19.4 million to build up that two-way relationship with industry. But I really think that the really interesting part of the risk management program is we heard from security managers, chief operating officers, CISOs, CIOs, about how do, how do we capture the board and CEO's attention? So the risk management program, every year commencing next year, the board will have to sign off on the risk management program. We thought that's the best way to bring that relationship between the security managers and the CEO and board. And so hopefully that then sets a culture of discussion around risk management. And sure, there's a legislative obligation, but actually the best outcome is a cultural change in organisations at the board and CEO level and, and bringing that holistic plan together across each of those different hazards. 100%. That's a really good tool, I think, having that that kind of director level, board level oversight, but also making sure that there is that kind of accountability top to bottom. I think for a number of years, you've had CISOs and others who are dealing with risk in institutions sometimes actually having that problem, which is as far as bubbling that up to, to board level and having that taken seriously or perhaps addressed with the same degree of priority as some of the other parts of the business, that's always been a challenge. So this is a way of getting around that to some extent. Assume you're dealing with AICD and others on injecting that into training and making sure that directors and board members are actually cognizant of those responsibilities. Definitely. And the AICD has done a really good product for board members about cyber risk, the questions to ask, the issues to look at. It's a really fantastic product. Excellent. Well, I think we're probably running out of times. A really excellent conversation there, Hamish, and thank you for laying out so clearly some of the different aspects of critical infrastructure and uh, the, the, the terms under which we're looking now at these reforms, the work that you're doing with industry, the work that you're doing on outreach. If you're an owner and a, or, a, or an operator of a critical infrastructure asset or a system of national significance, uh, if you are a board director or a member of a board, it absolutely behooves you to head to the Home Affairs website and, and develop your understanding of obligations and new legislations in place. Uh, Hamish, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that and best of luck as, uh, as this conversation moves forward. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.